0: When, when were you last on the receiving end of someone else's unexpected mercy or compassion, okay? So when, when were you last on the receiving end of someone else's compassion? You know, They just did something, think, oh, wow, wasn't expecting that, didn't deserve that. Have a stand up, have a stretch, and uh, um, we'll get back together in 30 seconds, okay? There here we are. yeah we've got more slides does that work or uh, not sure. There we go. beautiful. thinking more about this this word compassion and uh, look forward maybe to hearing some of your stories afterwards but um, have you ever been on uh, or have you ever been made uncomfortable like really uncomfortable? Um, by an act of compassion uh, whether you've been on the receiving end of that you've, you've witnessed it you think and it's just it's just got in and under you know your values your beliefs and it's like I'm not sure about that like it's just it's made you uncomfortable that photo uh, was taken in a town in 1996 um called Ann Arbor in Michigan and um the woman lying on the ground there is cashier Thomas. She was one of a group of locals who had gathered to protest a Ku Klux Klan rally. Now, the Ku Klux Klan, they were an American white supremacist hate group, 1865 after the American Civil War, to fight against the establishment of equal rights of Afro-Americans. So, there they are. You've got the Ku Klux Klan on one side of the Bunch of protesters on the other side of the fence suddenly though a fellow protester shouted into a megaphone there's a Klansman in the crowd there's a Klansman in the crowd and a moment of chaos in the man tried to run away but the protesters grabbed him threw him to the ground and began to beat him this now famous moment captured on film by photographer Mark Brunner Keshia Thomas between the protesters and the Klansmen, shielding him from their blows with her own body. Cashier was only 18 years old. Not only did it become one of Life magazine's photographs of the year, but this act of subversive compassion, it sparked a conversation that spread like a wildfire across America. Challenging the values, the beliefs about right and wrong, the sense of justice and what people deserved, and it actually birthed of forgiveness and reconciliation to the undeserving with people who had done untold harm or evil things to individuals and families, being forgiven by those families and by those people. Has compassion ever caused you to put yourself in the line of fire for an enemy like Kesiah Thomas did for the man on that day? I mean, we do... Perhaps certain friends, this is a dangerous question, would you do it for your pastor? Hmm? Anyway, hopefully, John, they would. <laughs> but, but what about for someone that just arouses anger... At the mere mention of their name. Someone who has hated and personally harmed you or your family. Who do you think just deserves whatever is coming to them? See, Keshia Thomas's act of compassion makes me uncomfortable because, well, this would not have been my reflex action as an 18-year-old. But here's what makes me even more Uncomfortable. Would it be my reflex action today as a Christian? What about you? See, what might an act of uncomfortable compassion look like if someone caught a photo of you doing it? sisters and brothers, don't we follow a saviour who did the ultimate catcher, Thomas? A saviour who gave his life for an undeserving, God-hating humanity at enmity with God. How does Paul put it in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8? There we go, thank you. I'm going to put this down because I seriously am not good at doing that and preaching at the same time. <laughs> one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... While we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. And why I've chosen, and particularly Jonah chapter 4. Because I think Jonah, the whole book, is a story of very uncomfortable compassion. Not just for Jonah, but actually for us as well. Again, that brief recap. Jonah is commissioned by God to go to the great city of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, which is in modern day Iraq. Is to preach God's coming judgment on the city. Now the Ninevites, they had an even worse track record than the Ku Klux Klan against Jonah's God and His people. And we don't know. Possibly even Jonah and his family or tribe had been on the receiving end of some of that stuff. I'm told that. But as we as we know, Jonah has a dummy spit. He sets off on a pagan ship, far away from Nineveh, in the presence of the Lord and His mission for him, as he can. But Jodah can't escape God's presence or escape God's mission for him. As we know, God sends a storm. Jonah tells the sailors to throw him overboard to save themselves. And they do. They end up calling on the name of the Lord twice. One, to have mercy for throwing an innocent man overboard. Second, they end up offering sacrifices and making vows to the Lord after They've been saved and the sea is calmed. Well, as we know, God then sends a big fish to save Jonah. Lovingly humbled by God, Jonah prays to God there at the end of chapter 2, verses 7 to 10. I think I've got it on a slide. When my life was faint, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols... Forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice you. And what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. The whole prayer of Jonah in chapter 2 captures The story of Jonah's humbling, doesn't it? How God humbled him, turned him around away from his rebellion to humble him, to cry out to God and to set him back on the right path to God and his mission for him. I want to suggest that this idea of God's humbling is not a bad definition of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. For isn't that what the Lord is doing every day? Trying to turn us continually more and more to the love of God in Jesus, to his purposes for us, to be on mission for him, to seek first his kingdom. Well, as we know, Jonah does go to Nineveh and he spends three days preaching the gospel that God had given him. You are to be overturned by the Lord in 40 days' time. Now, stunningly, this important city of more than 120,000 people, including the king, they are convicted by Jonah's message of God's impending judgment. They repent, they turn to God, and God relents from destroying them. It's an amazing story of grace. But that brings us to the why behind Jonah's actions and anger the why behind Jonah's actions and anger there in chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 what do we read displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry in fact I don't know I could have asked you to talk to one another about when you were last angry (laughs) maybe that was five minutes ago I don't know uh We all get upset and angry for all sorts of reasons, don't we? I don't know if you picked up on that reading, but five times we're told Jonah is angry. It's just in chapter four, five times. How angry at God is Jonah? Verse three, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now that's one serious dummy spit at the Lord, isn't it? It's better for me to die than to live. I'm so angry. With you, God, I'd rather be dead. Literally, it reads, Jonah is exceedingly displeased. Literally, that the original language it was exceedingly evil in the eyes of Jonah. What was exceedingly evil in the eyes of Jonah? Well, that more than a hundred and twenty thousand people escaped God's judgment and were given a second chance by God, who Jonah thought deserved God's judgment. It was evil in his eyes that God should have compassion on this city. Now, um, I uh, got onto the Australian Bureau of Statistics, discovered that about 30,000, just under, 30,000 boys and girls and grown ups live on the York Peninsula. Is that about right? No? no? Well, what's your number? Well, there you go. That was the first number I got when I looked up the SBS Census Bureau of Statistics. But I went with the Australian Bureau of Statistics. I thought that'd be accurate. But um, look, if it's 30,000, maybe they did the census during holiday time. I don't know um but um that's obviously four times the number if it's 11,000 it depends if you count and big there. it depends where you draw the line okay there you go well, the top, yeah. top, top the i feel like this is a big debate on the New york peninsula <laughs> who actually is a dinky die york peninsula hey is resident is this true <laughs> all right <laughs> 12 times the population of the genuine people living on the york peninsula um that's how many that God relents from wiping out. About a thousand people in Middleton, is that right? Thereabouts. So there you go, 120 times the population of Middleton. Oh, we're talking about a lot of boys and girls and grown-ups, aren't we? And so verse 2, for only the second time in the book, Jonah prays. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why... I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This explains all my actions, Lord. This explains why I did all I did because I knew that this is the sort of God you are. Now, Have you ever been made angry because someone was too kind, too merciful, too compassionate or too forgiving? But here's the question I want us to grapple with for a few minutes. How did Jonah already know that the Lord is a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast chesed love? Well, that brings us to my second point what I've called the definitive compassion encounter, the definitive compassion encounter um, in the Bible, at least the first one. Who is God? What is God like? It's that first Bible reading. Now, I suspect we've all lived long enough to know that one's character, if you, if you know one's character, that's to know who the person truly is. Not what they say that they're like, but what they're really like, their, their character. Of what it's like to be in a relationship with them. Um, what to expect from them how they're going to react in certain situations what they're going to do well, It's the same with god in that first reading from exodus 33 and 34 about six to eight hundred years before jonah we heard moses pray to god show me your glory show me the true truth of who you and what you are like of course back in exodus three The Lord had already appeared to Moses in the burning bush and proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord. The only time in Scripture, the Lord, the Lord proclaimed twice. And it's there we, I am who I am, I'll be who I'll be. But what is God like behind his name? That's what Moses is asking God to reveal to him. Show me your character, show me who and what you're like. So how does the Lord God, who spoke the universe into existence from nothing, who parted the Red Sea and accompanied Israel by terrifying lightning, thunder, fire, deep darkness, how does this Lord God respond to Moses' request in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19? I will make not some, but all my goodness pass before you. Now try and wrap your head around that. I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now, it's stunning for a couple of reasons. But in the context of of when this happened, it's stunning because of what's just happened in the chapter before, Exodus 32. Do you remember? Moses, an 80-year-old man, has just come down Mount Sinai for the ninth time with the first set of stone tablets. And what's he discovered? What have Israel done since he's been gone? Yeah. They've already given up on God. Showing themselves to be utterly faithless. Oh, don't know where that Moses guy's gone. Let's make our own God. And so Moses, in in his anger, what does he do with those first stone tablets? He throws them to the ground. So, so they're, you know, written by the finger of God. They're lying somewhere in the dust <laughs> at the foot of Mount Sinai. So, despite deserving God's judgment after their utterly faceless rejection of Him as their God, who does God reveal Himself to be? Now, again, just imagine you're Moses. You're going up there. God's about to reveal and proclaim His character. I mean, what sort of God attributes would you expect God to come? You know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Awesome, fearsome. Especially in the light of what's just happened. But no, no. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And so compassionately shielded by the hand of God from from being annihilated from from God's glory, He, he glimpses, this is what he glimpses of God. And here the Lord proclaims, reveals five characteristics about he has and will always relate to his chosen people. What's the very first character trait? merciful not holy not awesome not fism merciful it's the word raham in hebrew it means compassion tender mercy pity it's related to the hebrew word for a mother's womb rahem the gut churning compassion elicited by a helpless baby from a mother or father I mean, how, how mind-blowing is that? That the very first character trait that God proclaims about himself to the whole universe is wrapped up in this parental love. Well, next God declares that he's gracious. Of course, it's the idea of finding undeserved favour before God's face, despite being utterly guilty and deserving of his anger and judgment we sang about that from lamentations why were israel not consumed by god's judgment sing it out all right sing it out because of the lord's great love third the lord reveals how he is slow to become angry i I really like this one because um in the original language, the the, the the language is literally God is long of nose. <laughs> it, like as long as it takes to take to grow a long nose is how long it takes God to get angry. Like, so, he, He's not this sort of impulsive, reactive sort of, um, you know, the, the, the way we so often are in our anger. No, no, He's slow to become angry. Next, God declares He's abounding in steadfast love. The word is Chesed, hesed. Linguists suggest this little three-letter Hebrew word has the largest semantic range of any word in any language. Chesed, a love that is kind, merciful, true, unfailing, loyal, relentless, dependable, unlimited, generous, reliable, rock solid. And that fifth attribute that you, you talked about, God is faithfulness in his chesed love. God remains faithful to his people. Even when they are faithless, just like what's happened in Exodus chapter 32, God remains faithful. It's why I love the Apostle Paul's last words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, God remains faithful. Why? Because God cannot deny himself. God cannot deny his character, who he is. It's who he is, to be faithful always to his promises. So just think with me, is not all biblical history, one long love story of this God abounding, abounding in this chesed faithfulness to his people who prove themselves to be faithless time and time and time and time again? And so this is how Jonah knew that the Lord is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in Hesed steadfast love. And I I know I'm a guest this morning. I've only known you for barely five minutes. But do you know about this God? Do you know this God as your God? Is this your God? Because he's the God of Scripture. Now, here's the really interesting connection to the book of Jonah and what I think is quite profoundly uncomfortable and subversive. You see, until the prophet Jonah, this character description of God has only ever been used to talk about God and his relationship with his own people, Israel. And for the first time in the prophets, here in Jonah chapter 4, it's applied positively For the first time god's relationship not just with any non-jewish nation but a nation who at this time in history is the greatest enemy of israel and jonah this israelite he sees it as exceedingly evil that god should be merciful to such undeserving evildoers like the Ninevites. Point three, the Lord's uncomfortable compassion lesson for Jonah. Now, I take personally great encouragement from God's very, very, very patient dealings with Jonah because if I'm honest and perhaps if we're all honest here this morning, isn't there a little bit of Jonah in each of us? And so we get the episode with the sun beating down on Jonah, the cast oil plant that God grows in a night to shade Jonah, the worm sent by God to eat the plant, (laughs) and finally the hot easterly wind sent by God. Is not all these things God continuing to try to teach Jonah and us about his very uncomfortable compassion for all people, even those who are at great enmity with God? That Jonah, like us, like the Ninevites, Are we not all just as despicable and undeserving of God's mercy and forgiveness and a second chance? It's the lesson of the plant there in chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? This is just after, you know, the worm's eaten it, (laughs) all right? And Jonah said, yes, I do. You can just imagine this guy having a tantrum, all right? He's sitting east of the city. He's having a tantrum, all right, with God. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. (laughs) And the Lord said, Jonah, you have compassion for the plant for which you did not labour, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I have compassion for Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 children and adults who do not know their right hand from their left? that is, who do not know about the judgment they are living under, or about my compassion to see them turn and take up my offer of forgiveness and be saved from perishing forever. Jonah, should not I have compassion for these undeserving humans as well? You ever wonder what happened to Jonah? The book sort of ends open-ended a little bit like, you know, Jesus... Um, parable Luke 15 isn't it the the older brother there in the prodigal son we don't know did he come inside or didn't he it's just we're left hanging we're sort of left hanging here about what happened to Jonah did Jonah learn the lesson of God's very uncomfortable compassion for the undeserving Ninevites we well, either something to throw into the mix on July 24th 2014 images appeared of Isis having destroyed what most believed to be the tomb of the prophet Jonah in Mosul, in Iraq. Now Mosul was once the Assyrian city of Nineveh. Did Jonah live out his days and die in Nineveh after they repented and God relented from destroying them? Did Jonah realise God's compassion is for the undeserving, that Jonah and God's people are no different to the Ninevites? But what happened to Nineveh? Well, by the dating of the prophet Jonah and of the prophet Nahum, it seems that the people of Nineveh and Assyria were spared God's justice for more than 150 years thereabouts. As prophesied by Nahum 150 years after Jonah, God's patient love for the subsequent generations of Ninevites to turn to him and be saved finally runs out. Nineveh and all Assyria do eventually experience that part of God's revealed character that we heard proclaimed from Exodus 34, 7, where God declares, but I will by no means clear the guilty. And so the New Testament teaches that every human lives and dies once, then faces Jesus either as their judge or as their saviour, Hebrews 28. But that's then. Of course, now our friends and our enemies need to hear the gospel preached so they can know their right hand from their left. And so as we draw out a few takeaways for us this morning, what might God's uncomfortable compassion lesson be for you and I, for us this morning, for his people here at Gospel Church Middleton? Kesha Thomas covering a man with her body who had spent his whole life hating her is a stunning act of compassion. How much more is the love and compassion of a God who has given the body and blood of His only beloved Son to cover the sin and the shame of an undeserving, God-hating, rebel humanity in order to save us, to save you and I from the coming day of His judgment and perishing in hell forever. We have no right to expect such mercy from this Holy One. Yet, sisters and brothers, here we sit this morning. Dear brothers and sisters, are we not among the undeserving? There is only one sort of human, one sort of Christian on the planet, the undeserving kind. We're saved not by who we are, what we've done, not saved by our pedigree or because of who our parents were or what we're only saved because God for some mysterious reason has decided to have mercy and compassion on you and I. Have you been conquered by this compassion of God? Are we being conquered by this uncomfortable compassion of God for the undeserving? You see, when it comes to who God has compassion for to be saved, He doesn't play favorites. Never has, never will. Now, I, I love the story of Gospel Church, Milton. I love the long call of grace of God's grace, you know, on on John and Crystal. You know, it was here, it was to Alice Springs, was it? Then it was to Brisbane, and then you're back here. Yeah. But here we sit because of God's call of grace. 25% of Australians, 7 million people live outside of capital cities now. It's growing. Unreached nations in regional, rural and remote communities, they, they need more John and Christals, more Glenn and Beth McDonalds. So we need more Jack and Lil Harrodines to be empowered and equipped and raised up to start more gospel communities in them. And as I said, this is what GCM's been about for about four years, is that right? Well, BCA, add another 100 years, we've been about aiding this to happen for, for a long time. Christian workers, whether they're been to Bible college or not, to go the distance, to be supported, to plant, pastor churches, you know, supporting youth, kids, workers, and as you heard, uni students like Emily as well. But... Why do we need to be willing to go? Why choose the harder, costier path in life? Again, just that next slide, thanks. Just to remind you of some of the men, women, couples, families, retirees. Um, if you're breathing, BCA are interested in you. <laughs> okay? And you think, well, maybe this is it. This is where God would have you be. But there are other gospel, less poorer, less reached, um, less resourced communities in Middleton. Could you help be the answer to taking the gospel to them? Not that I'm trying to clear people out of your church. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure you've worked this out, that, that the healthiest churches in, 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 in Australia, in the world, that they're healthy because, not, not because of the healthy front door, but the healthy back door. Because from the moment someone walks in the door, their vision is to equip and empower and to send you out the back door to live and minister in Jesus' name. I think some of you here and many of the people up on that photo, they know that without someone to teach the gospel to the boys and girls and grown-ups in these remote places, they will perish without God for all eternity, which is always the greatest tragedy. I also think they've worked out something else, that God's compassion is never not uncomfortable. If you're still trying to get comfortable as a Christian, you're trying to roll a boulder up a big hill. <laughs> you, you, you can't, it'll never happen. If you're serious about grappling with God and His grace. Does not Jesus cross teach us that the love of God is always costly and uncomfortable? I've been trying to find this, but come and to, please come and show me afterwards. What part of Jesus leaving heaven, becoming human, preaching the gospel, being misunderstood, being resented, being rejected, being arrested, suffering, and being crucified—what part of that was not uncomfortable? <laughs> what part of that was not costly to the Son of God? And I can only find one sort of Christian disciple in the Bible, as Jesus said to all: "If anyone would come after me, let them deny them, deny, them, deny themselves, take up their cross daily." And follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. If you're serious about doing Hesed, doing compassion for people, whether big or small, it's never not going to be costly as a follower of Jesus. Whether it's baking a meal for someone who's sick or just had a baby. Whether it's visiting the ale or frail in a community, you know, rest home. It's just never not going to be costly. Preaching Christ to those who need to hear it is never not going to be costly as a follower of Jesus. Choosing to show God-like compassion. It may not be as extravagant as 18-year-old Keshia Thomas. You may never have the opportunity to put yourself in harm's way to save the life of a person who's spent their whole life hating you? Maybe you will. But what might an act of uncomfortable compassion look like if someone catches a photo of you doing it in the coming week or month? you pray with me? Merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that the book of Jonah is, uh, that all scripture is, a story of your uh, immeasurable, steadfast love and faithfulness uh, to a humanity uh, that continues to show itself faithless and undeserving. But yet, such is your love, here we are, such is your love, you holding off the day of your son's return, that this beautiful, gospel message of love and grace and forgiveness might go out to the nations who need to hear it. Uh, thank you for the way uh, you have um, got this beautiful little church here in Middleton going. I pray you would just grow them more and more in the love of Christ and the delight of stepping out in courageous faith uh, to share Jesus with people around them, to, to do things um, subversive um, works of compassion and love for their fellow neighbour, whoever they are. Uh, Please use them to be a blessing to the unreached here in Middleton and and to surrounds. Um, Please help them to flourish to such an extent that they might be able to send and start more churches as well. Uh, Father, I thank you for them and pray for them, Lord, that you might continue to reveal more of your glory and Use them for your glorious purposes, for the sake of the lost. And Lord, we know it's always for our good. In Jesus' name we pray.